everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Dollar Bin Bandits, the only podcast where old friends talk old comics and with the people that created them. I'm Joe Marcello, joined as always by my friends Orrin Phillips. How you doing? And Mike Farah. Howdy, folks. So in a few seconds, you're going to hear our latest uh, podcast uh, with comic book writer Ron Mars. Now, I was absolutely thrilled because... He worked on one of my favorite characters, Green Lantern, and specifically Kyle Rayner Green Lantern of the 90s. Um, as you can see behind me, I got a pretty extensive collection. Uh, those of you listening to this obviously can't see that, but I got a big collection of uh, Green Lantern stuff. Uh, he does. At any rate, so um, he discussed his uh, thought process, developing Kyle Rayner, what went into him. Uh, I gushed a lot. Uh, and he also discussed uh, his time writing cross-gen, as well as uh, one of our favorites, Mike, uh, and yours, I believe, um, DC versus Marvel. Or is it Marvel versus DC? I think it probably switched every issue, Marvel versus DC and DC versus Marvel. There was a very, you know, uh, precious balancing act, that comic. It was. But, um, Go ahead. Yeah, I, I thought it was just a, a really great conversation. I was uh, thrilled to be able to participate in this first interview. Um, or in our third amigo, unfortunately, couldn't make it to this one. But um, uh, I think he's going to get a thrill out of this. Uh, it was very interesting. I thought the cross-gen talk uh, a lot about, you know, often we talk to these uh, writers and artists and they're separated by miles. They never talk to each other, only through the editor. And he said, you know, CrossGen was a true studio and he was working shoulder to shoulder with the artist, was able to collaborate very highly. Of course, you know, CrossGen didn't make it. It's not with us anymore, RIP, but um, really cool stuff on uh, on that. I'd just like to add that I was on the injured list and I'm kicking myself now because as I follow Mr. Mars on Twitter, he is a huge Mets fan, which means we could probably be best friends. So, Mr. Mars, if you hear this, you know, we, we're, we're simpatico. We have so much in common. So uh, it's a great interview. You guys did a wonderful job, and I think everyone's really going to dig it. I think it's destiny, Orrin. I you think know. so. It was just uh, we, we, we talked about how much more there is to talk about, so I think we'll probably have him on again. I did want to point out one more thing that you can listen to, uh, listen for during the interview, and that's this um, interesting concept uh, of fridging, if you've heard it. I think it's been uh, referenced, in fact, on the latest, uh, what, Deadpool, or Free Guy, where Deadpool is talking. But, right. you know, this trope where, um, uh, you know, significant women in a, a character's life um, get killed, sometimes in gruesome ways, such as with Kyle Rayner's girlfriend. And... Um, you know, how much that's become sort of part of the culture and, you know, what it says about our uh, relationship with women and how, how they were perceived back in the day. And he, you know, Ron really takes the issue head on and has some interesting things to say about it. He kind of owns, you know, owns the concept. And uh, I thought it was great. What did you think, Joe? I, I was terrified to ask the question, but I was very glad I did. Uh, how many times do someone get to speak to the person that created a moment that then becomes uh, a a a label for tropes of any kind? Uh, you don't really see that uh, or hear about that for that matter. So to speak to the guy 
who created that moment in comic book history that has then gone on to be used as a label for, um, you know, a reoccurring uh, theme uh, in comics is, is pretty interesting. So, you know, he was super cool about it. You'll hear, I don't want to give anything away, but um, a very, very cool story. Yeah. He was very gracious in talking about it. It was not defensive at all. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was a really cool moment. So, um, enjoy. All right. So, uh, I am uh, really thrilled by our guest today, uh, extensive career in comic books. Um, you know him from Green Lantern, uh, Silver Surfer and Green Lantern crossovers. I mean, the look, for me, it's all about Green Lantern right now. I mean, everyone knows I love Superman, but I'm going to uh, geek out a bit. Uh, we have Ron Mars. Thank you, sir. Uh, happy to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. It's uh, an honor to have you. Uh, I've gushed, um, but... I'm going to ask kind of how you got into uh, line of comics. Um, I'm assuming you mean professionally, not professionally. Yes. Not, not plucking them off a spinner rack when I was, you know, when I was six, because that's how it really started. Um, actually, it really started digging through an old cardboard box in my parents' basement uh, of my brother's old comics, which were like 60s Marvel, um, you know, Silver Age classic stuff early Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. And so that, that was actually my first introduction to comics when I was you know, too young to actually read them. I could just look at the pictures. Um, but professionally, I got into doing it because Jim Starlin said, hey, do you want to write comics? And I said, yes, I do. That seems like a good thing to do. Um, so I was, I was friends with Jim, still am friends with Jim, obviously. Um, and uh, I was working as a, as a journalist in um, local newspapers, you know, 21, 22 at the time, um, still in college. And um, I, I, you know, I just kind of got to be friends with the uh, comics contingent in the Hudson Valley in upstate New York. Um, Starlin, Bernie Wrightson, Dan Green, Terry Austin, Fred Hembeck, Joe Staten, so that whole group of, of people are, you know, was my social circle. Uh, they were the people I hung out with. And uh, Jim had me copy edit his first prose novel, um, which was uh, Among Mad Men. Um, or was it Thinning the Predators? I think it was Among Mad Men first. And then he later wrote Thinning the Predators, and I copy edited that too. Um, so Jim liked what I did well enough. I was, you know, working as a journalist already. And he said, hey, do you want to, you know, do you ever think about writing comics? And, you know, the, the line I usually give is like, that's like somebody saying, hey, do you want to play center field for the Yankees? Well, well, yeah, but that's not a thing that you actually get to do. Um, but when Jim Starlin says, do you want to do that? And shows you the ropes and co-writes a few issues with you and then takes you by the hand and takes you down to Marvel and introduces you around. Um, you can, you can, that's how your 30 year career starts. Um, so that's, you know, it's, it's all because of Jim Starlin. Uh, for good or ill, I'm here because of Jim Starlin. And uh, I'm still here because of Jim Starlin. Um, and I've been doing it ever since. So as a new, new writer in the business, I mean, how did, what were you thrown into, basically? Like, you know, what was your first uh, writing gig? The first, first comic script I ever wrote was for Silver Surfer Annual Number 3. Um, 
uh, <clears throat> wasn't actually the first one that came out. I actually co-wrote a few issues of the regular Surfer Run with Jim, but the annual was done first, was done ahead of time, and um, and kind of sat in the can for months. Um, that's back in the hoary days of of comic books actually being way ahead of schedule instead of you know, skinning them out to the printer uh, five o'clock on a Friday. Um, so uh, you know, so I co-wrote some surfer stuff with Jim, including the annual. Um, got a chance to do a solo story in the annual, which was um, originally supposed to have been written and drawn by uh, Jim Sherman, who did uh, Legion of Superheroes in the seventies and bunch of stuff in the eighties. Um, Jim Sherman disappeared in the Yucatan, uh, and could not be, could not be raised to do this story. So they came to me and said, Hey, do you want to write this story? We need somebody to, we need somebody to get this done. Um, so because Jim Sherman was incommunicado and eventually did resurface, um, I, I think he eventually made his way back to America. Um, but uh, because because Sherman disappeared, I got a chance to step in and do a solo story, which thankfully Ron Lim drew. Um, you know, I was I was uh, my my inabilities and inefficiencies uh, as a young writer were you know were covered up by working with a seasoned pro like Ron Lim, um, and I've literally been doing it ever since. So. Um, Jim showed me the ropes. He showed me the script style. I, I still use the exact same script style 30 years later. Um, it, you know, it was, it was a learning process, obviously, but I found I could do it. I found I, you know, the, the thing that Jim taught me, and I actually, actually teach in, in a class that I do with uh, Jacob Kruger studio in, in New York, um, an online class about it's a comic book writing class, but the, the thing that I lead the class with is what the first thing that Jim told me was, which is comics are frozen moments in time. And your job as the script writer is to figure out what those moments are um, and communicate that to the artist, whether you're doing full script or Marvel style or whatever. Um, but you have to think visually uh, to come up with what this story looks like and then convey it to the other people on the creative team. So um, I found that I could do that. I found that I could think in pictures, um, which is not the easiest thing. They're always, you know, like screenwriters come in from, um, from LA, from uh, TV or film and try to do comics and quickly discover, oh, this is a lot harder than what I do. Um, because you're, you as a comic book writer are responsible for figuring out the whole uh, you know, kind of you're, you're depending on the, the level of your script and the detail of your script, you're kind of the co-director um, with the artist who is definitely the, definitely the co-director and certainly the cinematographer to break down the story visually. Um, so if you can't think in still images, um, you can't do this job. You have to be able to you have to be able to understand that, you know, the Batmobile pulling up to the curb and the door opening and Batman getting out and running into the burning building is not panel one. That's like panels one, two, three, four, and five. Um, so you have to kind of wrap your mind around that aspect of the, of the job where the job is virtually impossible. Yeah. What artists or, yeah, I would say, what artists do you think really uh, kind of capture your, your content? best and translated it to, to paper you know the real answer is damn near all of them because okay 
I can't draw. Um, I have no, you know, no artistic ability whatsoever. I can see the pictures in my head, but I can't reproduce them on the page. So, um, so this is ultimately kind of the coolest job in the world to me because I can see it and then somebody else makes it real. That's, um, that's a, you know, a, a wonderful gift to have when pages show up in my inbox virtually every day. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to work with, you know, an entire range of artists over the last three decades. Um, so to mention any of them would be missing a bunch of them, um, right. but certainly the ones that I've worked with a lot, I should mention, you know, Ron Lim, Daryl Banks on Green Lantern, Paul Palatier on Green Lantern, um, Bart Sears on a bunch of stuff, Rick Leonardi on a bunch of stuff, um, Bernie Wrightson, you know, the all time greats, uh, and even Jim Starlin drew some of my stuff. So, uh, you know, so it's, uh, it's, I have a lot more people on my list of, of, you know, bucket list people that I have worked with than I haven't at this point. So let, let me ask, uh, Joe, you mind if I jump no, in? No, by all means. By all I'm curious about, uh, going back to your breaking in, um, breaking in specifically on an annual, did you think that that was a, um, easier, more sort of comfortable entrance for a, a, a newbie uh, compared to sort of one of the mainline books that you're going to be hopping on writing month after month? Well, I mean, uh, I, I guess in some, to some extent, you know, I had Jim as a, as a backstop. I had Jim as a safety net. Um, right. I knew if I screwed anything up too bad, he was going to come and fix it. Um, but I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between an annual and a regular issue of Surfer. Um, I co-wrote some issues of Surfer with Jim. I did issue 49 of Surfer solo um, so he could get ahead and, and work on the double size issue 50. Um, the, you know, the silver foil cover issue 50 that, that people still bring me to sign at conventions and I have to say, well, I didn't actually write that one. <laughs> I wrote 75 silver cover, but not that one. Um, so, I, you know, it was, I guess I was too naive and excited to be intimidated by it. Um, you know, it was, sure, it was it was a big deal thing, but I didn't, I guess I didn't really realize how much of a big deal thing it was because these were, you know, the, like these were my friends. These were the people that I hung out with. So there was, you know, there was a certain comfortable, a uh, certain comfort level about that world and just, you know, like Bernie Wrightson being a guy you go have beer and pizza with rather than Bernie Wrights and the guy that drew Frankenstein plates that are, you know, like some all-time illustration greats. So there was, yeah, I, I'm sure, you know, thinking back, I was, I was nervous and wanted to do a good job, but I think more than anything, I was just excited. I was just, you know, excited and felt confident that I could do it. That's a great feeling to have. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I had, I had worked at the daily newspaper, newspaper in Kingston, New York, um, my hometown since I was like 18, right? So I was like a part-time sports writer and, you know, moved over to the entertainment desk. And so I had been doing that for a number of years already. Um, so that sort of, like I had no, no issues with my, you know, my stuff being in print and my name being on it. Like there was no stage fright for any of that stuff. Yeah. And I, and I also learned very quickly that you couldn't please everybody. Um, somebody was going to be pissed off somewhere somehow about something no matter what you did like if i if i wrote a high school football story and you know didn't didn't mention a kid 
because mostly he sat the bench until the game was out of hand and then he got in, in for a few plays. I mean, inevitably, you'd get a call from that kid's parents saying, you know, why didn't little Johnny get his name mentioned in the story? Well, he didn't do anything and he was in there for garbage time. So, you know, fairly, fairly quickly, I learned that um, people were going to be upset no matter what you did. So don't worry about it. Um, so I didn't have the, um, the, uh, I guess, imposter syndrome, stage fright or any of that kind of stuff that, that I know a lot of people go through when they, when they do their first work. Um, I got all that over with when I was like 18. So, um, so I think that obviously was a big factor in me being fairly relaxed about the whole thing. And plus you entered, I think, maybe just before when comic books really started rising into, you know, mainstream consciousness. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it was still a niche thing. Um, yeah. You know, it was still it was still a niche thing. Um, conventions were not conventions as we know them now. Um, it was just, you know, it was this, it was a, this little niche entertainment thing we do over here rather than, you know, the kind of the, the, the main form of entertainment that the world takes in, in terms of taking these characters into other media. Um, so yeah, it was a little bit like being, you know, like being in a hobby shop, not, uh, you know, not on the stage of Madison square garden. It was, it was small and off to the side. And, um, Although comics were, you know, when I broke in, comics were selling like crazy because the boom was on, right. um, which to a certain extent was, there was also a factor of, well, look, if you can hold a pencil or use a typewriter, you can probably get work in comics right now because Marvel and DC were just churning stuff out because everything was selling. I mean, when I, when I took over Silver Surfer as, as my first monthly, probably a year or so into my career, um, it was selling 300,000 copies an issue. Wow. Like, and that was not, that was like a mid-tier Marvel book. It was not the, yeah. it was not the, um, you know, it was not selling X-Men numbers. Uh, X-Men ruled the world at that point. And, um, you know, seven figure sales were not out of the question. It was just a crazy boom time, but, uh, you know, and I knew that was going to end because I had people who, uh, had been through the boom and bust of comics, you know, Starlin and Wrightson and Terry Austin. And, you know, every all of those guys were telling me, look, it's not going to always be this way. You know, your royalty checks, which are, are large now, are not always going to be this way because it goes in waves and troughs. And right now we're at the crest of a wave and hopefully it lasts for a while, but it's, um, you know, it's not permanent. Like some of the guys who, uh, some of the young guys who, you know, had huge success doing image books, kind of image spinoff books who went out and bought, you know, $100,000 sports cars and, you know, uh, spent money on silly things. Um, as soon as the bottom dropped out, they regretted that stuff because like that money was gone now. And there wasn't, you know, you, you went from selling half a million copies an issue to selling 30,000 copies an issue, like overnight when that, when the bottom dropped out then. Yeah, I remember. So <laughs> during that period of time, um, Mike was Mike and Orrin actually were the guys that got me into comics. I used to go to their place and read their stuff. And they're like, why don't you just start buying? So anyway, you know, I remember when, you know, all the, the craze with Death of Superman came out. And, you know, I know Mike contributed to that where he was buying a couple of uh, the bagged issues. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we're all composing thinking, somewhere. Hey, we're going to, you know, 
retire on those on those comics at some point. You and everybody else, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I remember going into a consignment shop last summer and seeing that that white bagged return return of Superman. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it was like fifteen twenty bucks in the case. And like that. Um, at any rate, so how did you move from, or what caused you to move from Marvel to to uh, Cross Gen? I think that was uh, next. Well, I went from Marvel to DC. Oh, okay, um, and Marvel. From, from Marvel to DC and then to Image. Okay. Um, and sort of worked at all of those at the same time. Um, oh, okay. I think there was, there was a, for a while there, I was, I was writing a monthly Marvel book, a monthly DC book, and a monthly Image book. And that was okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a different time. Everybody was, that, that was not that unusual. Um, okay. And the, you know, the, the proclivity of exclusive contracts, the proclivity of exclusivity, um hadn't really come around yet uh so you could you know you could you could work both sides of the street and nobody was terribly upset about it um certainly as a writer you can do that as an artist not so much because you know artists is just doing one book a month for the most part um but i um yeah i, I for a while i was doing you know a book at, monthly book at all three places and various and sundry specials and then did like a year or so at Valiant amongst that time. Um, and then eventually went on a DC exclusive for a few years, um, during which, you know, it was Green Lantern and Superboy and uh, various and sundry Superman issues uh, when they needed a pinch hitter um, and a bunch of specials. And so, um, and then, you know, late, late 1999, I guess, Cross Jam came calling. And uh, and that was an interesting experiment that ultimately was a failure um, in terms of it still being around. But uh, it, you know, it was an interesting it was an interesting time. I learned a lot about making comics and and I think we made some good comics there. Can you talk a little bit more about um, how CrossGen came about and how they approached you and what the pitch was or was it a two way street? Did you sort of say okay i understand what you're trying to do here are some characters how did how did that all work um i met uh mark lessie who was the the cross-gen guy the late mark lessie now um in 99 at uh san diego and uh i was introduced to him by uh, a friend of mine named ian feller who was uh ex of wizard magazine and I knew Ian just from working at when he worked at Wizard Magazine, um, because I would, you know, go down once or twice a year and we'd play softball or volleyball against the Wizard guys. And um, I, I do remember we played we played touch football with with Ian one time and I burned him for a long touchdown, uh, which which I shouldn't have been able to do because he was much faster than me. But I just got out in front of him and, uh, and took it to the house. So um <laughs> So Ian introduced me to uh, to Alessi and, um, you know, started a dialogue about what they were doing. And they sent me a bunch of materials, all of this very nicely produced. Uh, this is our this is what we want to do. This is what our our uh, universe is going to be like. Um, and, you know, to be honest, the, like the, the, the bones of the story that were there were not very good. Um, I was looking at this stuff. I remember I went for a hike um, on the eastern side of the Hudson and took all this stuff with me. And 
sat in the gazebo overlooking the Hudson River and read all this stuff and came away going, oh man, I don't know. This, you know, like like career-wise, money-wise, this was a this was a nice opportunity. But dramatically, I was like, man, this stuff doesn't work. Um, so I kind of told them that we had a we had a phone call. Um, they flew me down to Tampa, which is where the offices were based. Um, and we, you know, we sat around for a few days and they made me a very, very nice job offer. And then we kind of dug into the stories and I said, well, here's, you know, here's a bunch of shit that doesn't work. Like this is, these, these are, these are, um, events that happen. These are not stories. Um, these, this is a series of events. It's not a story. So, um, so they kind of, you know, they kind of said, well, you know, you change whatever you want to change. And um, they gave me my pick of which books I wanted to do. And the, the first, the initial four books were uh, Meridian, Scion, um, Mystic, and uh, Sigil. Uh, all of which I think had different titles at that point. We, we retitled all of them too. Um, so, um, you know, they gave me my pick and they gave me my pick of the artists that they were hiring, uh, which is how I wound up working with uh, Brandon Peterson and Jim Chung. Um, and so we decided to, I, you know, to, I took a plunge. I took I took a shot at it. Um, and, you know, creatively, it was very satisfying, generally. Um, uh, Business wise, obviously, the plan did not um, did not work to uh, in some ways I think it was probably five or ten years too early you know I can see some if somebody bankrolled something like CrossGen now where you basically had a huge studio um, and all the amenities and a really talented art staff um, you know Netflix or Amazon or somebody would come in and buy that thing for a lot of money um, we were just uh, we were just too soon um, uh, but I generally am very proud of the stuff that we did there. Um, I have a whole basket full of stories to tell about being there. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of, you know, I was in Florida for five years, uh, ultimately, uh, by the time CrossGen lasted for about three and a half years, um, close to four by the time the wheels really came off. Um, so, you know, had my second and third children in Florida and, you know, it was, so it's a segment of my life that I, I don't look back on with regret. Um, I just, I just regret the way it ended and the fact that a lot of people got burned when it did all fall apart. But, but overall, um, I'm very happy to sign those books when they show up at a convention and, and they show up on a pretty regular basis. I mean, I, you know, I can already tell we're going to need to have you on for another episode to hear some yeah, of this basket full of stories. Gonna, yeah, we're going to go have the cross-gen episode. <laughs> well, I got to, you know, I will, I, will, I will tell you ahead of time, there are some stories I can tell and some stories I can't. Some of the, Dish. or at least not in public. So oh, okay. All right. We'll, we'll turn names, off the cameras. Okay. <laughs> some, of the, some of the names might have to be changed to protect the not-so-innocent. <laughs> It. But it sounded like it was at least an interesting professional challenge, right? Well, Something that I, I, I don't know if up to that point you had sort of done previously. It was it was a pretty amazing learning experience because you were in the same studio with your art team. So um, it was highly collaborative. Um, and, you know, I got to write 
a script and then go over to Greg Land's desk and see it drawn or go over to, um, you know, Jim Chung's desk and see it drawn like four times. Cause Jim like drew everything four times. Um, that was his working method. Uh, so, you know, that was a hugely satisfying part of it. Um, and the fact that, you know, I learned basically soup to nuts, the, the comic making process there. We didn't have any editors at CrossGen. Um, the, the writers were basically the editors of the books. Um, and we were responsible for responsible for the content, responsible for getting them out on time, responsible for proofing them, making sure there's no mistakes. So, you know, in terms of what I learned at CrossGen, taking on those additional responsibilities, it was invaluable. Um, obviously, I'm still drawing on that stuff now when I, you know, do a creator own book that I edit or um, edit a book for somebody else. Um, I, I understand the process and I think I understand what everybody else in the process does much better than I did before I was in the same room with all of them. Like I, I understand, you know, what the penciler does and what the anchor does and what the colorist does and the letterer and the production person, like all of that stuff, because I had a bird's eye view of all of that stuff. Um, and it was, um, it was a satisfying experience to have, to have the book go out exactly like you wanted it to go out. If there was a mistake in the book or something was not to your liking, it was your own damn fault because um, there was nobody else. There was nobody looking over your shoulder. It's not like it's not like Margaret Leslie ever, you know, like read a book out before it went to press. Like when I said the book was ready, it was ready and it went. So I have to ask about Green Lantern. Um, all right, go. That's it. Just go. <laughs> <laughs> Just talk about Green Lantern. Uh, so, right yeah, as you know, like I, I've gushed about it, but yeah, he's one of my the Green Lanterns, I will say, uh, and Superman, my two favorite characters. Um, and so when I got into comics, you know, Emerald Twilight had just kind of happened. Uh, and then I did some catching up. Um, and it's it, it has been an amazing ride for me to read all of the work on, you know, everything Green Lantern up to this point. Specifically, I've, you know, enjoyed everything you did with Kyle Rayner over the years. Um, and I say that because, like, you know, I know characters change, but he, like, I've really, like, you feel, I felt his pain when he was, you know, when he was hurting, um, you know, his evolution from different versions of his character over the years, you know, you know, new Green Lantern to, uh, like the torch bearer to Ion and then later a white lantern. It's so, and back again. So it's been like, as a fan, it's been an, uh, an amazing ride for me. So um, where did you, let's see, where, where do I start? I have so many questions. <laughs> um, where did you, where did you get your inspiration to write for him? <clears throat> Spider-Man. I okay. mean, that's the real, that's the real answer. Really? Uh, yeah. I, so, so DC, DC called, cause I had done a few, um, I had done a few Green Lantern core quarterly stories. That was kind of my getting my feet wet over at DC um, and was in the Green Lantern office doing, you know, some short stories. Um, and that relationship was going well. And um, one night DC called, it, it was actually, a day that I had been in at Marvel all day. I'd been at, in at Marvel all day, um, having meetings over um, 
what we were doing on Thor at the time, which was which was not which was not a great run, frankly. Um, the the editor and I were not on the same page, um, and would continue not to be on the same page. That's why that's why I wrote Green Lantern for seven years and not Thor for seven years. Um, so I got you know I got home from being in the city, and um, you know like seven thirty eight o'clock I got a call from uh, from DC which is unusual to get a call at 7.30 or 8 o'clock because that, you know, D.C. at that time obviously was in New York, right across from the Letterman Theater. Um, and, you know, oh, we want to talk to you about Green Lantern. Uh, and they, you know, on the call was um, was the triumvirate of, of editors which who ran D.C. at the time, which was... Archie Goodwin, Mike Carlin, and um, uh, Denny O'Neill. So like the big guys. Uh, and Paul Levitz was in the room too, uh, in addition to Kevin Dooley, the Green Lantern editor. Um, so when those people call you in the evening, mm-hmm. things are either really bad or really good. Uh, so so they, they offered me Green Lantern. Would you, you know? Would you take over the book because they liked what I was doing on Silver Surfer and they liked what I was doing on uh, on uh, the Green Lantern Quarterly stuff? Uh, and frankly, you know, you're always sexier when you're working on the other side of the street. Like, you know, DC wants to hire the Marvel people away, and Marvel wants to hire the DC people away. It's um, thus has it ever been, um, and still continues to this day. Um, so I said, man, that'd be cool, and then. You know, and then they told me what the plan was, which was Emerald Twilight. Um, they were gonna they're gonna move Hal out of the lead role and turn him into, if not a villain, at least an antagonist. Um, and they wanted if if I was gonna do that, I would be making up a new Green Lantern. And that was like, okay, well, that seems like a big deal. That's mm-hmm. not. You know, that's not just, hey, do you want to take over the book? That's, do you want to, you know, turn the book upside down and shake it for a while and see what falls out? Uh, so I actually had to think about it. I didn't give him an answer on the spot because um, it was, you know, it was kind of a big deal. And and probably ultimately would mean leaving some Marvel commitments to give it proper time and all that. Um, but obviously I said yes. And then we jumped into it. Um, we jumped into it you know, with both feet, because um, at the time there was, you know, there was already a plan for issues 48, 49, and 50 in place. And a good chunk of those issues had been drawn already. Um, There was an existing issue 48, 49, and 50 that were scrapped. Um, I actually have some pages from that stuff. That's the the first Daryl Banks pages of Green Lantern have never been seen because they were in uh, they were in one of those issues and they just, you know, they were just set aside. Um, that's why my first three issues of Green Lantern were drawn by three different artists, uh, Bill Willingham and Fred Haynes and then Daryl taken over at issue 50 because all of those issues had to be done at once. Um, there wasn't time to have, um, to have one artist draw all three issues. So all three issues had to be in progress at the same time. Um, so when I agreed to it, they sent me, like a page and a half of notes of this is what Emerald Twilight is. Um, and anything beyond that was, was up to me. Um, you know, the whole, 
Hal recreating uh, Coast City and seeing his old girlfriend, like all the stuff that happened in issue 48 was kind of, you know, stuff that I made up from whole cloth. And, and the vast majority of the details were stuff that I brought to it. Um, and then the last bit of notes on the page and a half that they sent me were, and a new Green Lantern is created. Um, and that was it. That was, you know, like there was no, you know, there was no corporate, you know, uh, meeting to decide, uh, you know, who the new Green Lantern would be. And there was, you know, there was no, there was no focus group. There was no, like, they were just like, go make it up. Um, which obviously would never happen now. Right. This, that's, that's a thing that is, is a, is a, um, artifact from the past. You, you don't get that sort of opportunity now. Um, because everybody, look, this stuff is worth billions of dollars now. Um, yeah. they are multimedia intellectual properties. Um, so everybody gets to say, but then it was just go make up a green lantern. And I asked them, uh, if it could be an alien and they said, no, it should still be a human. And I said, can it be a woman? And they said, no, we'd like to keep a male lead in the book. And that was it. Like, that was the only thing that they told me. Um, so I, you know, I went into my office at home and just, you know, sort of, made up a Green Lantern that I thought would be different enough, particularly from Hal, um, uh, but also different enough from Guy and John Stewart so that there would be a different flavor on the buffet table. And certainly um, one of my biggest influences um, as a kid was reading Spider-Man comics. Mm -hmm. um, and Spider-Man was you. Spider-Man was the everyman character. Um, you could you could put yourself in Spider-Man's shoes, even though he doesn't have shoes, um, and you know you could kind of, like you you're not Superman, you're not Batman, you you don't um, inhabit those characters like you do Spider-Man. Um, so I wanted to create very much a everyman archetype character um, because the DC universe didn't really have that. The DC had a lot of um, authority figures, a lot of, you know, like a lot of, uh, aspirational figures, um, which, which is great. And I love all of them. Like I, I love Hal and I love Barry and particularly Superman and Batman, but they are from a different age. Um, they are different, a different kind of character than the Marvel universe characters that I grew up with. So I basically did a Marvel style character in the DC universe in that, you, you know, he was your POV. He was your, you know, you could see yourself in him. And the, the notion was that I wanted to do a book where you were as interested and invested in what he was doing out of costume, whether he was paying his rent or having dating problems or, you know, like all of the, all the stuff that Peter Parker went through, you know, getting yelled at by J. Jonah Jameson and, and taking care of a sick aunt and, you know, who was he going to meet at the coffee shop for a date? Like all of that stuff sort of informed what I was doing with, with Kyle at the time, because I wanted him to be um, different from the rest of the DC universe. There's, you know, the one thing I appreciated about the character uh, is that, you know, even up until, you know, when Hal Jordan came back and they finally shook hands he always doubted himself, you know, like here he is, he's got the most powerful 
weapon in, in the universe, what have you. And, uh, you know, he still didn't quite feel, you know, up to, he didn't feel like he was the guy, uh, you know, he felt, um, uh, he, he felt somewhat inferior, you know, he doubted himself. He had, uh, you know, he had for all intents and purposes, fear, you know, uh, and, you know, versus say Hal Jordan, who was a hothead fly by the seat of your pants type character. Um, and, you know, it's anyone who, who's given that type of situation, like, you know, of course this is, you know, none of this is real, obviously, but you know, how, how would you react? Okay, here, go save the universe. Here's a ring, go do it. And, you know, I, I appreciated that aspect of the character because yeah, it seemed more genuine. Um, and, you know, it didn't seem like he really broke free of that up until when Hal Jordan comes back in Rebirth and shakes his hand. It's like, hey, what do you think you've been doing all this time? And uh, you can see, like, the light go off. And he's like, yeah, all right. I'm the guy. I, think that, I always feel like the, the story of the hero becoming the hero is more interesting than um, the hero having always been the hero. Mm-hmm. Like, I... I, I like Hal's character a bunch, um, and especially the the '60s, you know, sort of space race Chuck Yeager version of the character. Um, mm-hmm. So I think you know, frankly, New Frontier is the best Green Lantern story ever. Um, you know, hard traveling heroes notwithstanding, mm-hmm. um, I that's more of a you know GLGA story. Yeah. Uh, I think sort of pure Green Lantern story. Give me New Frontier because it's got that. 60s space race vibe and to me that's where Hal works the best is is right in that right stuff kind of kind of zone so I felt like if if the edict was that we were we were going to move away from Hal as the lead character in the book let's not do Hal light let's not do um a a sort of you know a, a version of that character who who is frankly already a hero before he ever gets the Green Lantern I mean Hal's a hero before um, he gets the ring from Adam Sir, um, and there's nothing wrong with it. Not, that's not a uh, that's not a criticism. It's just an observation. Um, but but my thought was okay. Well, let's do something different. Let's do um, let's do something where the the character that gets the ring is the complete opposite of that. He's the you know he's just a normal guy. So that you you and you as the audience can put yourself in his shoes and think. Well, you know, what would I do? Right. Was it always the goal long term to bring Hal Jordan back? Not for us. I mean, not, not for DC for a number of years. Um, there was no, there was no, you know, if there was an escape hatch mm-hmm. in the process, nobody ever told me about it. Um, it was just, um, you know, this was not a situation of, uh, you know, like breaking Batman's back or killing Superman, where you knew that that was a that was a storyline that was temporary. Right. Um, we went into this with the with the full knowledge that this is what we're doing, and there's there's no way back. You know, so make it work. Um, so there was no, you know, like look, it's comics; anything can happen. Right. And, you know, often does two or three times, but. Um, as far as we were concerned, this was just this was who Green Lantern was now, and this is this is what the book was. Now, if it had come out and tanked spectacularly, um, 
would you have gotten Hal Jordan back? Yeah, sure. Um, but uh, but the fact is that we sold a lot of copies. Um, yeah. You know, it was a it was a sales success, and comics are the shotgun marriage of of commerce and art. Um, and as long as your commerce is okay, you can kind of do whatever art you want. Uh, so, um, so the fact that Kyle came out and was a success, and we sold a bunch of copies and attracted uh, a large number of new readers, um, which was kind of, you know, it wasn't the, you know, it wasn't a number one on the list, but there was a, at least in my mind, there was a thought that this should be a book that brings people into the DC universe who are maybe not reading books right now. Um, this is a way in. Um, because I certainly remember when I was a kid um, and a book like Nova came out. Mm-hmm. Nova was, you know, uh, Nova, shockingly, is a Spider-Man type character uh, who's part of an outer space core of heroes. Um, my God, where did I think of Kyle? Um, so, um, <laughs> you know, I can remember as a kid, like, like really digging Nova because, you know, I, could, I had issue two. Like I, I was there from the beginning. I never found issue one, but I was there like right in the beginning. And I was part of this journey for this, for this hero moving forward. Um, so I remember what that was like. I remember that, that notion of being in on the ground floor of something and that thing leading you to other places in this shared universe. So that was certainly in my mind when, um, when we created Kyle. Um, and it's certainly not an accident that, within his first year or year and a half, you know, Kyle goes to hang out with Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and uh, Captain Marvel, AKA Shazam. Um, you know, I, I wanted to play with those toys. I wanted to explore those places in the DCU. Um, and it, you know, turned out that Kyle was a really good vehicle to do that with. I find um, it interesting um, that you uh, refer to uh, the death of Superman and breaking Batman's back. Because when I think about that time period and even you talking about how Emerald Twilight was um, sort of given to you, or at least the spine of the story was given to you, it seems to make sense that that would be one of those kind of um, story changing uh, inflection points um, that DC would have wanted to do having seen Superman, and I'm, I don't know the chronology, if I'm getting the chronology right, of Superman, the death of Superman and Batman uh, breaking his back came first. Right. And so therefore they're like, who else can we do something like this with? What what, else what you, yeah, nothing, yeah, nothing, you know, nothing succeeds like success, right? So, sure. so certainly death of Superman and breaking of Batman were precursors to Emerald Twilight. Um, you know, if 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 those storylines had come out and flopped, probably Emerald Twilight never happens. Maybe maybe Green Lantern just gets canceled because obviously, um, to change the book wholesale like that, um, part of that is um, uh, part of that is is because the book wasn't selling. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was uh, moribund in terms of the sales and in terms of reader interest. And I think and I think DC very much realized that. Hey, given given how great temples and making them a toy salesman, maybe not the best things we could have done with our, you know, with our, uh, you know, hotshot test pilot character. Um, nobody wants to see Chuck Yeager like 
in a in a in an eighteen wheeler going across the country. It's it's not what he's there for. Um, the so, gray the gray hair thing really seemed to piss people off. Um, it's it's just like look, Reed Richards showed up with gray hair. Everybody's cool with it, right? Right. Um, um, but but making making Hal into your dad's Green Lantern was was obviously a misstep. It was so um, funny because like during Rebirth, like they made it a point. Hair turns back to brown. Yeah. No, no more gray. Which personally, you know, would have been great. Doesn't matter but, for us. Doesn't matter for us. I mean, what the hair I do have is gray, but you know. I'd like to point out that I do have hair, gentlemen. So, <laughs> which one of these is not like the others? <laughs> yeah, look at this glasses, hair, no hair. All right, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. I mean, look, it's it's a it's a progression, certainly. But this was the one that they looked at and went well we could do this permanently. Um, assuming it's a success, we can do yeah. this permanently. Um, and, and it was because, because the, you know, again, a different era, you're not dealing with um, multimedia platforms, right? It wasn't like there were, there were other, um, you know, oh man, we, you know, we can't, we can't replace Green Lantern because his show on the CW is a hit right now. It's like none of that. It's a different playing field. Um, so, so thankfully, I guess at the time, you know, all we had to worry about was comics. We just, we didn't have to, um, get, you know, see what other arms of, of the company were doing with that character. It was just us. And I think it worked the best, um, you know, yeah. maybe bias of course, but, um, you know, whereas the Superman and Batman events really were very eventy, if that's mm -hmm. a word, or very plot driven and, you know, things returned to normal eventually to that story. There were so many repercussions coming out of Emerald Twilight, not only a great new character in Kyle Rayner, but, you know, everything that would eventually happen to Hal Jordan and sort of exploring mm -hmm. how that character got to that point and then uh, obviously eventually return. So there was much more sort of character driven um, consequences uh, to that rather than Superman and Batman, I think are now, you know, primarily thought of as these very, you know, heavy and hot events that sort of burned off and then uh, everything went back to normal as it were. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, ultimately you're not going to change Batman and Superman. Um, they have been, Try. I wouldn't even say comic book icons. I would say they've they've been fictional icons since the late 30s. They they are what they are. They're hugely popular and hugely profitable. Um, and I think you know. And I'm not saying they should change. I'm saying you know, like look, they they work as they are because they are really kind of perfect creations. Um, you know, made by you know, in the case of Superman, a couple of kids, mm -hmm. and in the case of Batman. You know, I guess kind of a kind of a scoundrel who worked with Bill Finger on all the good stuff. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, but they were, um, you know, they were created and continue to be to great extent what they were created to be because they they work um, and they are, you know, I guess, along with maybe Tarzan and Sherlock Holmes, maybe Dracula, they are the most recognizable characters on the planet. Very true. Yeah, very true. So after, uh, you know, the poor Kyle gets uh, put through the, the ringer in, uh, in uh, Green Lantern, 
you you bring back Hal Jordan and in Rebirth, which was just amazing, and then Sinestro Corp War, which was equally as amazing to me. Um, was that? I mean, it just seemed like you know a no brainer as a comic book fan. Like, yeah, there should be a a yellow lantern core for all intents and purposes. Um, were you, was, you know, DC receptive to all that at the time? Oh, I think that was, you know, most of that was, was Jeff Johns and he, you know, like, like any creator of comics, you kind of stand on the shoulders of the people that came before you. Mm -hmm. Um, so Jeff built on what came before him and the people that came after Jeff built on, you know, what he did. Um, so, uh, anytime you can expand a franchise like that, uh, it's great for sales. It's great for merchandising. Uh, obviously, you have the the yellow lantern back there, right? Got a green one uh, too. Yeah. Um, so you know, so it it made the story much bigger, and I think in some ways it was it was a really good contrast to um, what we had done with Kyle, because what we had done with Kyle was was about making it singular, like yeah. shrinking the franchise down to one character again so that you cared about that character yeah um it, it we very consciously made it um not a space opera book not a bunch of other uh green lanterns involved it was a singular superhero book um because we wanted to be we wanted to do something different than what had been done for the last 20 or 30 years mm -hmm. um so after 10 years of kyle you know kind of flying solo again be a singular character, a singular hero. Certainly it was time to expand the franchise again. Um, uh, and, and frankly, Green Lantern is one of the more um, elastic franchises in comics um, because you can do all sorts of stuff with the characters. Um, you can do, you can do solo superhero stuff and you can do outer space, cosmic space opera stuff. Um, yeah. There's, there's a wide range of material that you can do within that franchise and it all still fits. Uh, let me ask you something, and this will be my last Green Lantern question, but I, I promise. But it, I find it, I think it's important to at least address. So the, so early on, you know, I guess it was maybe, you know, one of the few uh, issues into the whole Kyle Rayner uh, initial storyline, his girlfriend gets killed. And that event became a term that was used in comics in terms of uh, women in refrigerators. And was it was in fact used in the in the Deadpool and uh, Deadpool trailer yesterday. Uh, was it really? Yeah, when, when Deadpool is sitting on the couch with the uh, oh, with Korg, right? With Korg from uh, from the Thor Ragnarok movie. Yeah, um, right. they they discuss fridging. And, oh uh, Jesus! Which, I haven't know, actually. Uh, I just I just thought it was really funny, and they, you know they they discussed it in in context of what happened in the second Deadpool movie. Um, oh. So, um, so I, you know, I live. I think that was. I think that's what I was supposed to do. I, I just, you know, um, we spoke. We spoke to uh, June uh, Brigham. Brigham, excuse me. Uh, a couple of months ago. And, you know, I wanted to get her take on it. 
And uh, she wasn't aware of the term, uh, but I always, I was like, wow, that, that became like this event that just turned into a term of women getting used as a plot device and, you know, being hurt, killed, what have you. Um, and so it became a common thing. And I was just curious as you're, you know, since it was, you know, something that you wrote in your story, how it gets, you know, turned into this, this, uh, this term, not very good, though. you know, like a well, I mean, it's, look, negative it's a, it's aspect. A, it's a totally valid and important conversation to have. And it was when um, initially uh, Gail Simone pointed it out. Um, and, you know, Gail and I are friends and we've talked about it any number of times. And we talked about it at the time. She, you know, interviewed me for her website. And everything. Um, and, uh, look, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a trope, not just in comics, but in fiction in general. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it, it's, it's even more common in comics because, uh, or at least superhero comics, because, uh, by and large up until even 10 years ago, um, the vast majority of comics were superhero comics and the vast majority of superhero comics starred male protagonists. Uh, so your male protagonists don't go away, right? They don't, the male protagonists don't get killed um, because they're the, they're the cash cow that, that everybody comes back for. Um, so the supporting characters of those male protagonists, those are the people you can do stuff to. Um, those are the people that you can have permanent consequences for. Um, so when, uh, when Kyle's girlfriend, Alex was killed, I mean, that was, that was frankly the plan for her from the beginning. Um, and um, she was, you know, she was always destined to suffer, um, suffer a very unpleasant fate because he was not taking the job seriously. Um, so in retrospect, I mean, at the time, I thought of it as Kyle's Uncle Ben moment okay. where somebody else pays the price because, you know, because he's being an idiot or he's not doing the job like he's supposed to. Um, the, the more obvious comparison is Gwen Stacy. Um, and I frankly, at that time, hadn't even read that Gwen Stacy issue. I mean, I knew, I knew what happened, but it was never an issue that I read as a kid. So, um, so I was thinking much more in terms of uncle Ben, mm -hmm. but with his girlfriend. Um, so, you know, in some ways, an unfortunate choice, um, in other ways, the fact that people got really upset was gratifying um, because if you kill off a character and nobody cares, you haven't done your job properly. Um, so part of uh, introducing Alex and having her in the book um, was that we wanted to build her into a character that you cared about and you rooted for, and um, you didn't want something bad to happen to her. Uh, in some ways, she was a much better person than Kyle at the time. Um, she was responsible. She was the one kind of kicking him in the ass and making him do the right things. And he was not, you know, he, he felt like he had won the lottery with this ring and was still not really taking the job seriously. Uh, so she, you know, she suffers a, a gruesome fate uh, at the hands of people who are trying to get to him. Um, and obviously uh, we did it in a, uh, I guess, sort of unforgettable fashion. Um, but I, I freely admit that I ripped off that whole thing from Stephen King um, when, oh, really? 
when in the novel Firestarter, I'm a big yeah. Stephen King fan. Um, in the in the novel Firestarter, government agents come to uh, the house of the little girl who has the pyrokinetic powers, Charlie. Um, and um, they don't find Charlie; they find Charlie's mother. And uh, Charlie's mother gets stuffed into either a um, washing machine or the dryer. I'm not; sh- I don't remember quite which, but that scene stuck with me and sort of the horror of finding um finding that when you come home um that's totally what i was doing with uh kyle finding his girlfriend in the refrigerator um and uh so so i am fully cool with blaming me uh for that because i wrote it but the truth is i i just sort of um went into my stephen king backlist and came up with that Thank you for thank you for answering that because I was apprehensive to ask you because I wasn't quite sure how you know some people would interpret things like that. So. No, I'm I'm totally cool talking about it, and I think it's an important thing to talk about, and I'm glad that that um, that it became a discussion because we all have blind spots, and we all um, we all tend to look at things from our own points of view. So when Gail said, "Hey," this seems to happen over and over again. And I think it was, I think it was much more about, um, uh, much more, obviously somebody's in the driveway. There you go. Uh, the, uh, we, we call it the dog bell. Uh, <laughs> um, so it's a couple of, couple of German shepherds. So they think they're doing their jobs. Oh, okay. Um, so, um, so the, um, the fact that it happened over and over again yep. to me was was the bigger deal was the pattern to it that oh the, you know the male hero's girlfriend or significant other or whatever is the one that that suffers the the grim fate it's not the male hero um uh, although you know look i i i knocked off a uh longtime supporting character in witchblade um actually tossed him off the empire state building nobody cared so uh, <laughs> you know uh there was there was not much reaction to it. So I think a lot of it is is how you know how beloved that character is, whether that character has appeared in you know eighty issues or like in the case of Alex, like five. Um, I I suspect she's she, like initially before um, before she was killed, she probably had appeared in twenty or twenty five pages at most. I think. I mean, the context is super important here, and I, I really yeah. appreciate your taking us through that. And you know, yeah. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. I mean, uh, in terms of the you know majority of these heroes being male, which we all know, uh, but then their supporting cast or the folks that they care most about are going to be female, and so therefore, upping the stakes in a story. Who are you going to hurt or kill is the closest people to these male characters, which are often female. We don't have a lot of Uncle Ben's. I mean, I don't, I can't, I mean, they're mentors maybe, but a lot of times those mentors are also character, male characters of consequence that you're not going to get rid of. So um, it's the usual, um, and it's certainly a much larger discussion about, you know, storytelling tropes and sort of the, the sexism inherent in, in those kind of stories, but you know, like part of the, you know, to, to me, Lois Lane is a kick-ass character, and I love Lois Lane. Um, as a former journalist, I, you know, I just think she's great. She should have her own monthly book. 
Um, but, you know, many years ago, obviously Lois Lane's um, primary purpose was to be tied to a chair by an evil scientist so Superman could bust in and save her. Um, that's, that's sort of the pulp nature of where these stories come from. Um, and certainly Lois's character has evolved over the years to be, um, to be Superman's equal and in some ways his superior in, in certain aspects. Um, but did not necessarily, necessarily start out that way because that's not where we were as a society. Yeah. I bet if you did Emerald Twilight or if you were pitching what you wanted to do with the new Green Lantern and you started out with, I'd like it to be a female protagonist, they would approve you in a split second. Oh yeah. Well, look, it's again, you know, shotgun marriage of art and commerce and, and the feeling in 1994. And it was probably, uh, it was probably a valid feeling was that if we did a female protagonist, people wouldn't buy the book. Right. Because traditionally um, female led books had not, um, had not sold well. Um, generally, you know, Wonder Woman was obviously the, the icon and, you know, was always there, but a lot of other female led books that were tried in you know, Spider-Woman and, um, Ms. Marvel and, you know, the previous versions, obviously, um, just were not, were not sales successes. Now, certainly that's a chicken and egg question. Um, like if you don't cultivate the other 50% of the world as your audience yep. and you put out a book that's a female protagonist book and it doesn't sell well you know maybe you needed to bring those people in to your to your market share first um and obviously that's you know that's where we are now we you know i think uh, my suspicion is that overall comics and graphic novels there are probably more women reading it than men um that doesn't mean superhero comics but um but there's a large and voracious audience um, of women buying comics. Um, I, I noticed that when I took over Witchblade that I signed a hell of a lot more books for women than I did for men at conventions. And certainly that was true at CrossGen when I did Sojourn, um, which was a female-led book. Um, I, 75% of the people I was signing books for were women. Um, and, and at that time, you know, like 2001, 2002, um, conventions still weren't sort of like 50-50 in terms of attendance. Conventions were still kind of male-dominated, but even, even in that, that male-dominated era or the continued, sort of the tail end of that male-dominated era, man, I signed a lot of books for women. And I was kind of like, hey, fellas, like there's a whole other, you know, you want to sell comics? There's a whole other audience out there that has been underserved for like 60 years. Um, so maybe, you know, you want to save the business, maybe, maybe don't sell to just 50% of the population. They got the message eventually, uh, way, yeah. way late, <laughs> but, yeah. um, well, at again, least there's and, some and even, progress. And even, and even that's sort of like chicken and egg. It's, you know, something with a large female audience sells well and the publisher goes, oh, maybe we should do a little bit more of that. And they try it and it sells well. And then that attracts more of an audience. So it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a seed that's planted. And then if you cultivate it properly, um, it, you know, it bears fruit. And I'm very glad we're in a position where, um, we're not 
still selling to, well, I guess it's actually 49% of the population. <laughs> right. Um, so let me steer uh, into what I consider a less serious topic, although is, um, I wouldn't call it Mike Green Lantern, but, uh, and that's Marvel versus DC or DC versus Marvel as is your pleasure. Um, my, my basic question is, what? Like, how did that come about? I mean, it is just such a strange period of time where the two publishers not only agree to bring the plethora of characters together that they would never have thought to do before. Well, they okay, they've done a little bit of here and there, you know, Spider-Man and Superman. Um, but not only that, then bizarro bonkers combine everybody into the amalgam universe and do a whole line of comics on them. It just blows my mind. That would probably never happen at any other time before or after that event. And I'm just so curious about how it came up. Hey guys, I hate to brag, but you know, I have a pretty nice comic collection, right? Yeah. Well, the way I keep it so nice is getting my bags, boards, and boxes from BCW because I love my books and I want to keep them safe. The last thing anybody wants is a sloppy comic book collection. You don't want your issues just sitting around, unbagged, unboarded, unboxed, lonely, depressed. Give them some love. Put them in a bag. Get a board. Put them in a box. And you know what? If you're not a comic collector, and I'm not sure why you're not, but if you're not, BCW still has you covered. They got all kinds of sports memorabilia displays. They have Pokemon displays. They have displays for things you probably even haven't thought uh, are collectible. So definitely check them out. Baseballs, footballs, records, CDs, what have you, all your memorabilia for collecting. BCW Supplies has everything you need. And if you head over there, use promo code DBB, get a 10% discount. We'll appreciate it, and you will too. Um, well, How you got involved, I mean, particularly. Ultimately, see previous comment about, you know, art and commerce. Um, the, the commerce aspect took over because... Um, the bottom had dropped out of the business. Um, right. The the speculator bubble, the speculator boom, had burst um, to great extent. With death of Superman, um, uh, was one of the instigating factors, or, or the really the reign of reign of the Superman, um, which I think is a terrific storyline. Actually, I love that storyline. You know, who, yes. which one is the real Superman? Just yeah. just great stuff. I, I, I that entire year. I. Um, I, I was overjoyed with all that stuff. Um, but um, shortly thereafter, the, the speculation boom in uh, Superman books and Valiant books and image books uh, and just comics in general. Look, you know, when I was writing Silver Surfer, one of the books that was in the editor's office where I was working on Silver Surfer was Silver Sable. Like nobody even knows who the hell Silver Sable is anymore. The first issue of Silver Sable came out and sold like a half a million copies. Um, it's in you know that was it was insane times. You could you could slap some silver foil on a cover and people would buy it no matter what. Um, so um, so the 
you know, the bottom dropped out because so many shops were were overextended uh, to get all those books in, to get all those copies of of Reign of the Superman and, you know, the Turok chromium covers and all of that highly collectible stuff. Mike has that are that are you know look hitting my nostalgia a, bone here. <laughs> yeah like exports number one in a bag and all that stuff. Um all that stuff um broke a lot of stores because they ordered way too much of it. The speculators who had been buying that stuff up eventually realized, oh wait a minute, I'm not actually going to put my kids through college on this stuff and went away. So the bottom dropped out for a lot of stores in the direct market, a lot of stores closed, um, sales plummeted, and Marvel and DC wanted to get together to do something that would pump money into stores, that would keep stores open. Because obviously, if stores close, that's not good for anybody, and right. particularly not good for Marvel and DC. Um, you know, at, at that point, there was the direct market. And not a lot beyond that, because we we hadn't really, you know, digital didn't exist. Um, big box stores like Barnes and Noble and Walmart and all those places that now carry graphic novels did not do that at that point for the mo- for the most part. So it was the direct you had to keep the direct market afloat, or the the whole thing was going to collapse. So um, Marvel and DC agreed to do this big crossover to to frankly sell a buttload of copies and keep stores in, in business. Uh, so that's how it all came about. Marvel and DC um, agreed to do this. Uh, and it was frankly a, you know, a really good window for this to happen because they needed each other. Uh, the editorial staffs and the publishing departments of both companies knew each other. They're both, you know, they were in New York. They were 20 blocks from each other. Um, um, it was still a, a time of friendly competition and detente because, the you know, look, I, I played in a bunch of Marvel versus DC softball games and, you know, everybody was friends. Um, everybody, you know, went, you know, went to have, you know, after dinner beers at five o'clock on Fridays uh, together. Um, so there was there were relationships there that that, you know, helped bring this about. And the two biggest ones, I think, were uh, Mike Carlin, who was the Superman editor at DC and ultimately the executive editor at DC, and Mark Grunewald, who was one of the group editors at Marvel. Um, Mike and Mark were best friends and had worked together at Marvel uh, years before. Um, The two of them spearheaded this in a large way uh, and put it together as as really as a project that um, that would sell a lot of copies, generate a lot of interest, and keep store doors open. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and as a way to, you know, to give something to the fans that they get excited about. Um, so I got a call from, um, from Mike Carlin one afternoon, um, and said, you know, we're doing this thing. He said, first he said, you know, you can't tell anybody about this. And I mean, nobody, because he said, nobody, nobody at Marvel or DC knows we're doing this. Did it shock you? Except for, oh yeah. Um, You know, shocked me that I danced around the room. Um, (laughs) Because it was, you know, like Marvel and DC had been doing crossovers and there was, you know, the relationship was good, but something on this scale was not, you know, had never been done before. Um, So Mike called and said, do you want in? And I said, of course I do. Um, And, um, and then we met 
uh, Mike and Mark and I and Peter David met at Mark Grunewald's apartment uptown in Manhattan because they didn't want us meeting in the offices. They didn't want um, anybody wondering, well, why is, why is Mike Carlin here? Uh, or is, we probably would have met at DC's offices because they're nicer than Marvel's offices. Um, so, you know, or, you know, why is Mark Grunewald here? And, you know, why is, you know, why are Mars and David here? Um, so we met at Mark's apartment and had dinner at a Mexican place around the corner from his apartment. And the whole thing came from that. There was, you know, there was the, the notion, a lot of it was in place. A lot of it had been sort of cooked up by Mike and Mark and the, the, the five battles that were, um, that were going to be voted upon and then six other battles so that there was, you know, some, some set pieces to, to build around. Um, and, you know, the, the fan voting was a part of it from the beginning to, to get people involved. Um, none of the matchups were set. Like we made those up on the spot in Mark's apartment. Um, and then once we had sort of come up with the bare bones of what we wanted to do, they said, oh, and between the third and fourth issues, we're going to have this huge, you know, this crossover month where we're not going to put, we're not going to print, um, you know, anything to do with this. We're going to print their, the universe is being smashed together. Um, which was nuts. Uh, I, I can only imagine being a fly on that wall. Yeah. Oh yeah. I sat there with my, with my mouth open because it was just like, well, well, you can't do that. That's crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, just the, the, who's going to decide, okay, these characters are going to fight. Who's going to win? You know, like that must've been just batshit. So like, you're going to have, like, all right, Superman and Hulk, they're going to fight. But come on, Superman! You guys must have been making concessions. Like, all right, I'll give you, I'll give you Wonder Woman and Superman for you know whoever <laughs> Marvel. You know, we honestly, we honestly just you know made that shit up. So, uh, <laughs> but was it was it were they so like yeah sure amenable about it like you know, oh yeah no look it's you know these are these are toys you're you know we're just playing with giant action figures so um, so we knew that. Uh, you know, there were going to be 11 battles. The first six kind of the prelims that weren't going to be voted upon mm. needed to end three and three so that it would be right. tied. Um, the fix was in, obviously. It needed <laughs> them to be tied. So we just split those up in terms of the winners. Um, and uh, and then we, you know, we had a pretty good sense of how the voting was going to go because it's a popularity contest. Right. Um, okay. So the, the honestly, the only one we weren't sure of um, in terms of who was really going to win, um, in terms of the fan vote, was uh, was Storm and Wonder Woman. We just didn't know because you were dealing with a character that was not as well known in the popular consciousness, but was one of the stars of the most popular book on the planet um, versus you know an icon that had been around since 1939. So we just we didn't know which way that one was going to go. But we had a pretty good sense that, you know, the others were going to be Superman and Batman and um, the hell else with it, Spider-Man and, um, and Wolverine. Uh, it just, that just made, um, that just made sense. So, so really the, the, the one that was going to decide everything, even though we knew nothing was going to be decided, was, um, was <laughs> Wonder Woman and Storm. Um, and I think that, that ended up being the closest vote, too. And there wasn't a backup plan in case it just happened to be lopsided towards Marvel or DC. Um, not really, because uh, we were pretty confident. Uh, we did have um, 
the dark horse guys would come in and help. We had, yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, we had, we had alternate endings drawn for each of the battles. Okay. Um, yeah, cool. So we had those ready to go, even though we're pretty sure, yeah, pretty sure Superman's going to beat the Hulk because he's Superman. Um, so my job, because I wrote issue three, my job was to script those battles in such a way that there was as little redrawing as possible because it was a tight schedule. We wanted to get this stuff out in a hurry and get it into stores in a hurry. This wasn't a, you know, 18 months gestation period to get the first issue out. It was, let's go, you know, we have to go now. We have to get this done ASAP. Um, so, um, you know, every, like I, I get questions on Twitter at shows all the time about the Wolverine Lobo battle, you know, because the Lobo guys are really still annoyed. Like 25 <laughs> years later, they're still annoyed. I mean, was Peter David not like in the corner of the Hulk to beat Superman? He wasn't like trying to be like, come on, guys. Well, it, did, it didn't matter because we knew it was, you know, the, we, we legitimately, you know, counted up the votes and that's, that's true. And, and yeah. presented how it was going to go. But we had a pretty good sense that, um, you know, Superman wins because he's Superman. Yeah. Um, so all of the, like, virtually all of the contests are, decided like the winners revealed in a few panels so um you know superman and the hulk you know get bashed into a mountain and then one of them stands up uh victorious so we're not like redrawing pages we're redrawing a few panels right um the the lobo wolverine battle um going going behind a bar and then you know obviously we, we couldn't do that now because you can't smoke so um coming up from behind the bar to smoke a stogie um would would have to end differently now but um but the uh the redrawing of that stuff we wanted to limit it to as little as possible so you look Wait, at, so they can't smoke now in comics no the heroes can't smoke <laughs> the heroes can't smoke the heroes can't smoke i think you can probably show a villain smoking but i'm not sure um but it's just yeah it's just not a can they vape no, I'm just um, <laughs> no, because they would look lame. They would, no, that's true. Like, Sorry. like hipster vaping. So, um, uh, so it's all, interesting you know, that Wolverine was the one coming. I, I was, I was thinking, even though I don't remember the exact sequence, I was like, it's going to be something about Lobo, because like I bet a half of the stuff that they wrote in his own book, you can't even do uh, nowadays, even though you wouldn't categorize him as a hero. But um, it was um, Wolverine with the stogie, so. Interesting. Yeah, well, they they were both characters who smoked. Um, yeah, that's so true. I, I yeah, but Lobo remember. killed Super. No, Lobo killed Santa Claus. Um, yeah, but you know, he was probably smoking while he did it. So yeah, I guess so. Yeah, but he no, wasn't smoking Santa, Earth smoke. tobacco, was he? Um, I don't know. I think anything, anything in a pinch. <laughs> um, right. I uh, I want to be mindful of your time, but at the same time, I wanted to ask you about Endless Winter. Um, you worked on that recently. Yep, that was the big DC crossover last December. Um, and it's and I read it, I enjoyed it. But correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like that story got the shaft. Like it just blew, like it like there was a big setup to it, build up. I mean, it was coming off of a big event story. Um, 
And then they're like, okay, endless winter. And then boom, right into uh, infinite frontier. Well, our, you know, our job for that was look, do, do a contained story. And I say our, it was me and Andy Landing, who uh, I co-write stuff with. Uh, on, I was going to say on occasion, but really more than on occasion. We do a lot of co-writing together now um, and have done so in the past as well. Um, the, you know, the parameters that we were given was like, look, we, we, we need a Justice League event that's going to, you know, that's going to run through December. Um, you know, fill up our December books with a winter storyline. So that's what we pitched them. Uh, DC said, okay, cool. And obviously it went through anything of that size. It was like nine issues and over 200 pages. So anything of that size with that many characters goes through a lot of permutations. Mm. Um, you know, this, this character's in, this character's out. You know, you're, you're constantly making adjustments as you go. Um, and then, you know, to some extent, it was the notion of kind of an old school Justice League story where the Justice League's together. Yeah. And then they go off and do separate things. Uh, a sort of classic Silver Age Justice League um, pattern of, you know, they go off and do things together, which was, you know, the solo issues, Flash and Superman and <clears throat> a number of the other ones. Um, to do other, you know, to investigate other aspects of the storyline. Um, they came back together in the Justice League issue, which was kind of the middle point of the whole thing. And then um, and then a couple of other side um, side issues, uh, Titans, Justice League Dark, and then the big finale in the second part of uh, the, the bookend, basically. Um, so really, the you know, it, the notion for it was to make sure that it didn't become that sort of months long sprawling storyline the 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 goal was to get in tell the story and get out uh give people something that would keep them occupied every week through december but okay. finish it finish it up by the last week of december and i you know i actually like events like that i like events that um have a beginning a middle and an end and you know don't don't run into 15 other titles uh those are those are those are hard to manage editorially and creatively, um, and they also obviously demand a lot financially from the from the reader. Yeah, it seemed like um, it was a you know coming off of the whole thing with uh, heavy metal. This, that was a previous. Oh, story death metal. metal. Death metal. Excuse me. And then you uh, for, for me for a minute because I'm writing stuff for heavy metal too, and that's that's a lot of fun, uh, <laughs> but that's not death metal. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, so coming off of death metal, which was going on for like, you know, what seemed like forever. Cool storyline. I dug it, but, um, you know, and then Endless Winter seemed to get overshadowed by all the buzz about, you know, what was going on or what was supposed to be coming up in uh, Infinite Frontier with, you know, new Batman and the new younger Superman, which is not really his, you know, his son, or what, you know, all that stuff. So, um, you know, but no, that was very interesting. Well, I think there's room for, to me, there's room for all of that stuff. There's room for those huge sprawling storylines that sort of affect all of continuity and the, the universe as a whole. And then there's room for um, more contained ones that, uh, that are, you know, look, here's the story. Here's a story. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. You'll like it. Um, it's not going to 
um, transform the DC universe. Uh, Again. Everything you know <laughs> is wrong. You know, it wasn't it, that wasn't what it was designed to be. Um, and I think we, Andy and I were very happy with, with how it turned out and the, you know, the roots in the past with the Justice League Viking. And yeah. uh, we had a, you know, we, we got to tell what we thought was a fun winter story. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, somebody told me that it's actually okay for comics to be fun. So, uh, so I, I'm really, we That's were what, yeah. Yeah, crazy. Um, so that was really, that was really the, the whole purpose, uh, of it. And we had a ball doing it. It was, I mean, we were, obviously we were, we were writing the thing, um, in the heat of the summer. We were, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, we're, we're doing all of this, you know, winter stuff and set in the Arctic on, on, um, on glaciers and, and, you know, worldwide storms covering the earth and, you know, sitting here with, uh, you know, sitting here with a fan on sweltering, uh, while we're doing this stuff. And also while it was, you know, same thing for while it was being drawn. Um, so it was, but it was a fun, you know, it was a fun exercise and it had allowed, it allowed Andy and I to kind of jump back into working together too. Um, very closely because it was a lot of pages to churn out in a fairly short amount of time. Uh, we had to, um, we had to get a lot of material into the hands of a lot of different artists so that the whole thing came out on time. Um, and we did, we, we shipped 200 and some pages over five weeks in December and, um, generally really happy with it. I think the, I think the hardcover collection will be out in November, uh, because there's no sense in putting out your, your endless winter justice league event hardcover in the middle, in the middle of summer. Yeah, I think I really enjoyed the artwork. I think it lent itself well to the type of story. Uh, you know, like a lot of, you know, the the artwork was very, uh, the line work was very fine and crisp, which really kind of fit with the storyline of it taking place in the winter. It was, it was fun. It was a ball. Um, yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually really kind of excited for the, um, for the collection to come out. Cause I haven't looked at those issues since, since, you know, my, my comms are sitting on the floor behind me here. So I haven't looked at those issues in quite a while. Um, except for the Superman issue. Cause, uh, my buddies, uh, Phil Hester and Andy Parks who did the art sent me a, an original page from the issue. So oh, nice. I had to, I had to drag out the original page and compare it to the one in the book. Cause that's a cool thing to do. <laughs> so, um, nice. so, uh, yeah, out in, out in November, I believe if you, cool. if you missed it the first time around. All right. Well, Mike, uh, I don't want to hold you up any longer. Mike, do you have anything else? Um, of course, plenty, but um, I do too. let's, let's save it for the sequel. Okay. Um, it's been, it's been a real pl- pleasure, uh, Ron talking to you. Yeah. And, it's uh, been Joe. I've been super. Gush, yeah, gush, Joe, yeah, gush. yeah. No, I, I, you know, I've said my piece. Okay, <laughs> I, I greatly appreciate everything you've done. You know, for the business, your contributions, your writing, everything. Uh, I mean, I've enjoyed everything that you've done, and I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you now. Like, you know, and you know, Warren was, uh, you know, planning this stuff out, and uh, when he said like he made contact with you, I was like, are you? kidding me like really that's great so pretty easy to find well i you're in new york right i'm gonna come visit you (laughs) (laughs) now 
Pick an upstate, bring beer. All right. Uh, I'm in Westchester. Some of us consider that upstate. But. Well, uh, <laughs> people who don't know any better consider that upstate. Exactly. Right? Thank you. There are a lot of people who don't know any better, though. That's the unfortunate That's part. People who have never been north of Brooklyn. Thank you. Yes. Jeez. Anyway, uh, Ron, thank you so much uh, for for participating today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I Where can have... uh, some of your fans or all of your fans uh, find you, you know, online? And, and what do you have anything else coming uh, next that you want to um, plug? There's, there's, there's always stuff. I am generally more active on Twitter than anything else. And it's just at Ron Mars. Um, at present, I have a, uh, I have a, uh, crowdfunding project on, um, a new platform called Zoop, which is basically a comic centric version of Kickstarter, um, just for, just for comic projects. So, uh, Andy Landing and I and Rick Leonardi have a, uh, cosmic themed graphic novel, uh, creator owned or completely original, uh, on Zoop right now. And I believe that's zoop.gg is the address but um it's it's pinned to my um to my twitter profile it's pinned to the top of my page so um you can go there and find the link and and pledge and get a pretty cool hardcover graphic novel uh in a few months by me what's the name of the project uh it's called resolution um it is it the short version is um it's unforgiven meets the green lantern core nice um, so I mean, it's a, it's a new, that, uh, log line. It's a, it's a new concept, uh, new characters that, that, uh, Andy and I have created and Rick has created with, uh, designs, but it's about a, um, uh, a hero now retired from, uh, a heroic core in the cosmos called the resolute. Um, and she lives a solitary existence and, um, as they say, she gets pulled back in to go hunt down her arch nemesis who has resurfaced. Uh, nice. So it's um, it's big cosmic fun. Uh, Rick, so there are some Rick Leonardi pages up and Rick Leonardi uh, sketches and Andy Lanning sketches, and it, you know it's got the whole the whole boat from um, from the hardcover graphic novel itself to a uh, portfolio for which we. Um, for which we suckered in a bunch of our friends to contribute pieces uh, and uh, to original art from, from the story and sketches by those guys. So, um, so that's up for another, another four weeks. I think the, is the end of the funding goal. We're more than halfway there. So we're, we're hopeful that uh, we get it over the top and can produce this book, which, which, you know, all bullshit aside is going to be pretty damn good. Cause you know, you can work with your friends and, uh, make some cool stuff. So, so there's that, that's resolution on Zoop. Um, uh, there's, uh, I'm doing a serial called Swamp God in Heavy Metal Magazine every month, uh, which is a Civil War era story um, about uh, Black Union soldiers and Confederate soldiers um, lost in a swamp in Louisiana with a swamp monster on the loose. Um, so uh, that's, I believe, we've had three or four chapters out in the magazine. And uh, let's see, I'm doing Almost American, which is a spy series that uh, will come out from Aftershock starting in September. That was just announced. Uh, that's with a, uh, that's the true life story of, a, of an actual 
Russian intelligence operative who now lives in this country because he had to flee Russia uh, along with his wife, um, a guy named Jan Newman, who is actually a friend of mine now. And we are, we're, we are working on multiple comic projects together. So this is wow. his actual real life. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird when, you know, like your, your text messages go off on your phone and you're like, oh, there's my... There's my, my spy Russian, friend. There's my Russian spy friend. He, <laughs> he actually he actually called me on Sunday and he was like, uh, I have a thing I want to talk to you about, but uh, I don't want to text it. Call me. Oh, shit. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't just light line. a candle in his window so oh. that you notice on your walk. <laughs> uh, so, um, so, yeah, and then there's other, there's, I just started, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'm actually supposed to talk about it or not, but I just started a video game project too, so. Um, that's taking up a chunk of my time and I'm not, su I'm not supposed, to, I don't know that I'm supposed to tell you which video game it is, but it won't okay. be out until, uh, late 22. Um, so got it. The new Batman game. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's all, well, you know, we'll, we'll put it in the uh, show notes. If, uh, if this comes out, uh, you know, at the point that you can let us know about it. Cool. I'll, uh, yeah. So there's, there's a myriad of things occupying my time. Uh, I am blessed to be doing this for a living. Uh, I'm blessed to be making stuff up for a living. Um, I also teach at the Jacob Kruger School, um, teach comic book writing. So, um, yeah, there's not a lot of free hours in the day, but that's a, that's a first world problem. And I, you know, I, I feel blessed every day. We appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to uh, talk to us. Yeah. Very happy to do it. We'll do it again. Yes. Sounds good. All right. Thank Everybody you, Ron. Everybody buy Ron Mars stuff. So that was a really interesting interview. Uh, I, again, I can't say enough about Ron. It was super interesting and uh, an absolute pleasure to talk to him, especially talking to you know one of the people who created and worked on one of my favorite characters of all time. We enjoyed the heck out of doing that interview, and we hope you enjoyed listening to it. Um, I, I thought there are just so many pieces of it that were uh, could have gone off in a number of di different directions. So uh, we will definitely have Mr. Mars back on. Uh, but uh, again, a big thank you uh, to Ron for, for taking the time to do the interview. Hey, guys, check out next week. We're going to have John Ostrander on. Suicide Squad is coming out in August. This is the guy that created Suicide Squad. He also did a lot of work with First Comics. Uh, so many things he did. They're one of the nicest guys we've met so far. So you guys are really going to dig this. And right. as always, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We want you guys to enjoy this show, and we want to keep doing more. So get on there, give us some five stars, and uh, we'll keep going and doing more for you. See you next time, guys. Adios. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Oren Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials, at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram, at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. 
Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.